Well, if this is your first time joining us via live stream during these uh, last several weeks, we've been studying uh, the book of Daniel, and we're in the second part of Daniel, and I encourage you to take out your Bible if you have one and turn with me to the eighth chapter of Daniel, Daniel chapter eight, as we uh, spend some time this evening uh, looking at this chapter and uh, trying to understand this chapter. Um, we're going to look again at uh, the entire Uh, chapter verses 1 through 27 of Daniel chapter 8. This is God's Word. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great." As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. 
As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not his word. It will abide forever. Let's ask his blessing now. Father in heaven, we do pray your blessing as we turn to what is a very confusing chapter of your word, and yet by your spirit we trust that you will make it clear to us uh, for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, believe it or not, uh, Daniel chapter 8 actually became a talking point in the weeks leading up to Super Bowl 53 back in 2019. Uh, That matchup uh, saw the Los Angeles Rams against the New England Patriots, who featured at that time uh, uh, Tom Brady, who's considered by most to be the greatest of all time, or GOAT for short. Uh, So you have on one sideline the Rams, and you have on the other sideline the goats. And some of you know where this is going. People picked up on this. One pastor uh, in uh, New England put this on the church sign as travelers rode past in the weeks leading up to the big game. Verse 7 of Daniel chapter 8. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. And unsurprisingly, when uh, the Patriots won yet again, to most of our frustration, uh, he changed the sign the week after to read a portion, notice a portion of verse 8, then the goat became exceedingly great. Well, of course, uh, this pastor was was having a little fun using uh, Daniel chapter 8, yet I do think uh, that it reflects uh, a bit of the general attitude that people, even in the church, take towards apocalyptic literature. There is, on the one hand, a fascination with it, but on the other hand, a a high suspicion of it. Can we really know what these things mean? Uh, But I think by God's grace, through the working of the Holy Spirit, as we come to the text humbly and carefully and compare Scripture with Scripture, and as we try not to get lost in the trees and remember the forest, 
Uh, These things that God in his wisdom has chosen to show us through apocalyptic uh, literature are actually both for our instruction and also for our edification, for our encouragement, even for our comfort. And I hope and pray that is the case uh, tonight as we look at Daniel chapter 8. I want to begin by considering what Daniel saw and then turn secondly to what it means according to the angel Gabriel, and then uh, conclude with how it applies. So first, what did Daniel see? We're told at the outset of chapter 8 that these things took place in the third year of King Belshazzar, king of Babylon. This would put us two years after uh, the dream that Daniel has in chapter 7. And in this particular vision, he is uh, transported... 200 or so miles to the east uh, to the Persian capital of Susa. And uh, there he sees things. He sees things along uh, the bank of the canal of the Ulai. And the first thing that Daniel sees as he looks out is a ram. He sees a ram uh, with two horns. But one horn is higher than the other horn. And he sees this ram charging forward to the west and to the north and to the south, and nothing can stop it. It seems to have indestructible power. It does, Daniel says, uh, whatever it pleases, and it prospers in all that it does. It's a powerful ram. But then he sees a second animal, he sees a goat. The goat, he explains this way, it comes from the west over the entire face of the earth and it doesn't even touch the ground as it comes, which seems to suggest that it was moving at a a rapid, fast, swift pace. And it comes, and it comes with, with fury, with rage. And Daniel sees, and it comes upon the ram. Verse 6, he came to the ram with the two horns which he had seen on the bank and ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But this goat cast the ram to the ground and trampled on him and there was no one who could rescue the ram from this goat's power. It became exceedingly great. But just as quickly as it became great, it was broken. And then it was replaced. And from this one horn emerged four new conspicuous horns. Well, then he sees something else. He sees another little horn. We saw a little horn in chapter 7. He sees a different little horn in chapter 8. Verse 9, follow along if your Bible's still open. Out of one of them came a little horn. So from one of the four horns comes a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the southeast and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven even to the host of heaven. Verse 11 says, even as great as the prince 
of the host. And Daniel looks and he sees this little horn wreaking all kinds of havoc and destruction. It describes this little horn as, as trampling people down and, and, and throwing them and walking on top of them and, and throwing truth to the ground. In all that he did, he prospered. So he sees a ram, he sees a goat, he then sees a little horn. He then sees one who had the appearance as that like a man. And then he hears a conversation. And the question is asked in that conversation, for how long is this vision? How long will these things take place? How long will this desecration have to endure? And the answer given, 2,300 evenings and mornings. So that's what Daniel saw in this uh, vision. But secondly, uh, what then does it mean? What does it mean? That's what Daniel wants to find out. That's what we want to find out, what these things uh, symbolize. What's going on here in Daniel chapter 8? Well, suddenly standing right next to him, right in front of him, was the angel Gabriel. It's the same Gabriel who met with Zechariah in the temple, who, when he was doing his priestly obligations, was suddenly um, joined by Gabriel the angel, and, and, and Gabriel tells Zechariah in the Gospel of, of Luke that uh, he would be the father of uh, John the Baptist. It's the same Gabriel who also later meets with Mary and announces to Mary that she would conceive by the Holy Spirit and give birth to a son, and his name was to be called Jesus. It's the same Gabriel. And this Gabriel is standing right next to him on the bank of this canal. And as a result, uh, Daniel falls on his face. We shouldn't be surprised by this response. Over and over again in the Bible, when a human has an encounter with an angelic being, uh, the response is not one of comfort, it's one of absolute fear and trepidation. He's overwhelmed by fear. But Gabriel assures him and, and picks him back up, and then he says uh, to Daniel, I'm going to tell you what these things mean. I'm going to tell you what the ram means and what the goat means and what the little horn means. And this is exactly what he does. First, the ram, verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Two horns representing the one kingdom, the Medes and the Persians, one horn higher than the other, that would be the kingdom of the Persians. The Persians were the stronger of the two. And we know from history that the Persian Empire was unlike uh, the world had ever seen before it. It had an expansive kingdom. It was the Medes and the Persians that overtook the Babylonians that we read about uh, at the end of chapter 5. Well, what about the goat? This ram didn't last forever. Verse 21, Gabriel continues, And the goat is the king of Greece, 
And the great horn between his eyes, Daniel is told, is the first king. And so the Babylonians were taken over by the Persian Medes, and the Persian Empire was then defeated by the Greeks. This first king here is speaking of none other than Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great uh, was a remarkable man, else we wouldn't call him great to this day. Um, He was schooled at the feet of Aristotle, I found out this week. I learned that this week. Um, His father uh, was king, but assassinated when uh, Alexander was only 20 years old. But it didn't take long for Alexander to uh, compile a great military, and uh, by the time he was 26, for sure by the time he was 30 years old, he had conquered the then known world as far as uh, Greece to the west, North Africa to the south, and all the way to the east, reaching even as far as India. He had his his map everywhere, his stamp everywhere. Uh, To this day, To this day, uh, we still look to Alexander the Great as one of the the great military commanders of all time. This is this first king with this conspicuous horn who becomes exceedingly great. Yet, even he was broken. He would be replaced by four other kings, four other conspicuous horns. History tells us that his uh, vast kingdom was divided into uh, four kingdoms given to his four generals, but they would not have the same power uh, as he had had. Which then brings uh, Gabriel to explain to Daniel the meaning of this uh, little horn which emerges from one of these four kingdoms. And and really, I want you to see that this is really the emphasis of the text. Uh, In Daniel chapter 8, our eyes are meant not to linger at the ram or the goat, but they're, they're meant to really linger at this little horn. This is where the emphasis is placed in uh, Daniel chapter 8. We're told in verse 23 that this little horn was a king of bold face. Bold face. And we have the benefit of of hindsight that Daniel did not have. And as we look back, we can be uh, quite convinced that this little horn uh, represents a historical figure by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes uh, ruled in the years 175 to 164 BC. Uh, This would have been about 350 years after Daniel. So long into the future we're talking. So uh, the exiles of Israel would have returned. They would have um, rebuilt a second temple. They would have been living back in the land of Canaan. And uh, during that time would arise this Antiochus Epiphanes. And here's why he's so significant to this particular place in Scripture. His rule included uh, the glorious land. That is what's spoken of in verse 9. That is, uh, the the promised land. He was in control of of Canaan, of Jerusalem, during this period of history. And he made life for the Jews living in that place and time a living hell. 
He was an evil tyrant and dictator. He brought an end to the sacrificial system of the temple in the year 167 B.C. He uh, offered and sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple, which would have been the, the pinnacle of offense, of, of blasphemy, of sacrilege to a, a Jew. He erected a, a statue to Zeus in the temple. He burned copies of the scriptures. He introduced temple prostitution and child sacrifice. He slaughtered tens of thousands of Jewish people who refused to bow the knee. As many as 40,000 Jews in a span of three days. His name, Antiochus Epiphanes, was self-given, the last part. Epiphanes means God made manifest. He was essentially asserting himself as God in the flesh. This was a bold, calculated confrontation between Antiochus Epiphanes, this so-called little horn that grows exceedingly great, and the God of Israel. These are the things of which Daniel sees in this vision. Gabriel, one after another, the ram, then the goat, then the little horn, explains what these things mean. And it's fascinating that we can look back at this historically in Daniel chapter 8 and, and put these pieces together. But for the time remaining this evening, brothers and sisters, I want to consider with you what these things mean that is how they apply, how they apply to the church, how they apply to Daniel, and how they apply to us today. These are strange things, and maybe it's easy for us to, to wonder, well, what on earth does this have to do with the church in 2020? But I want you to notice with me, to begin, verse 27, Daniel's response. Did you notice it as I read the text earlier? He sees these visions, these animals, this little horn. Then Gabriel explains what these things mean. And, and how does he respond? Look with me at verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome. I was overcome. He says, I was appalled. In fact, I was sick for some days. Now, it's striking, isn't it? It's striking that while Daniel couldn't have known that these things would have taken place 350 years later, he certainly would have known that these things would have happened in future generations, in generations beyond his own, at least the ultimate, the little horn, and these things taking place, this desecration of which is spoken. He must have known that this was, was, was futuristic in some sense and didn't affect him and didn't affect uh, his time, didn't affect his family, but yet it's striking that 
Even so, even though he doesn't know how far off into the future this is speaking of, he's overcome with grief and sorrow and sadness. In other words, he's moved not because he is going to be personally affected, but because his people and even future people A people, yet generations to come. Not him, not his kids, not his grandkids. This is how much Daniel loves the kingdom. This is how much Daniel loves his people. Even thinking in the future, when the exiles will return to the promised land. In generations to come, whenever these things happen, Daniel is appalled because these things will affect his people. Oftentimes, I only feel affected when it involves me and my church, the church with my name on it, or my family. But Daniel teaches us, doesn't he? Something of the connectivity, the Catholicity, which we have spoken of and confessed tonight, that we believe a a one holy Catholic church, that is to say, a universal church, so that when one member suffers, we all suffer with it. Of course, this primarily means in the context of our local church where we have made a covenant to walk alongside of one another, to weep together, to grieve with those who grieve, to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're connected, right? Uh, uh, Many members, one body. We normally think of the one body as a local church, as we should, whether that local church is is Grace Fellowship or Harvest or in Joliet or down in Chattanooga. That's where we primarily uh, live and, and walk together with. Yet, we're connected to the church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when our missionaries suffer at the hands of persecution. It ought to affect us. We ought to feel something of of, of that grief. Of course, we're limited in how we can empathize. And yet there is a connectivity, a Catholicity to being a Christian So often I have tunnel vision. All that matters to me is me. We're a part of a kingdom. We're a part of a church. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 5. He says this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. And then it says this clause knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Throughout the world, our brothers and sisters are being persecuted for righteousness' sake, which is why we need to be informed of the persecuted church. 
which is why we need to understand who our missionaries are and pray for them and understand their needs and their burdens and open our eyes to the the global church and the, the historical church and to learn. Hezekiah, another king of Judah, was a good king overall, but there was a time when he was approached by Isaiah the prophet and he was told that future generations, not his own, but future generations would be, would be impacted, would be judged, would be exiled. And Hezekiah's response is very much like my response would probably be, well, if it doesn't affect me, I'm not all that concerned. Daniel is overcome. Even though he doesn't know how much further into the future. Can you imagine? How affected would we be if we were told in 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, the church of Jesus Christ would be persecuted? Would you be affected at all? But we're connected to the body of Christ in all times and in all places. I think we learn that from here in Daniel's response. But notice also something I think is significant in his reaction. Despite his grief, despite being um, appalled and overcome, Daniel gets back to work. Look, Look with me. Verse 27, in the middle, it says, Then I rose and went about the king's business. I love that. I I love that Daniel, who's now uh, 70, 80 years old, uh, hears this and he gets back to work. He does the business of the king. This morning, Pastor Dale asked, what difference would eternity make in the way that we live if we really understood if we understood eternity, if we really lived in light of forever under the banner of the gospel, if we really grasped that and lived in that reality day by day, how would that change? How would that affect things, your priorities, your motivations, your affections, what you live for? And that's what we should be thinking. We should be asking God to help us and to show us. But I think it's also interesting that while it would change and should change the way that we live, it doesn't necessarily change where we live. Living in light of eternity changes how we approach things, but it doesn't necessarily or even normally change where we're called to be. In other words, you and I are called to live in light of eternity right where we are. Right now, right here. If you're a stay-at-home mom, that's where you're called to be. If you're a student, that's where you're called to be. I mean, no wonder Daniel made such an impact on his community. Everybody, the pagans, were, were just lauding his praises because he rose and went about the king's business for years and decades. Way back in chapter 
1 of Daniel at Grace Fellowship, we looked at this letter that was written by the prophet Jeremiah, then sent to the exiles in Babylon. And this is what we looked at, Jeremiah 29, verses 3 through 7. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, verse 4. This is the letter to Babylon, king of Babylon. It said this, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here it is. Here's how I want you to live. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the good of your city. Isn't that striking? To the exiles in, in, in Babylon, don't you expect God to write to them and to say, you know, create your own little subculture and, and make sure you're being protected from the big bad Babylonians? He says, actually, live among them. Seek the welfare of that city. And friends, we're exiles too. We're, we're strangers. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. And our marching orders is to get up in light of eternity and to seek the welfare of the city. Wherever you are, to whatever you've been called, do it to the glory of God, looking to heaven. That's what we learn. And then finally from chapter 8 itself. It's, it's, it's everywhere in chapter 8 that God is in total and absolute control. Despite the appearance of the indestructibility of kings and their kingdoms, one after another comes crashing down. They're great. They're exceedingly great. And then suddenly, they're broken. One author says, no matter how great and menacing an empire may be, it is simply an actor in a play written by someone else, and that someone else is the living God. This is exactly what Daniel prayed way back in chapter 2 as a young man. God sets up kings, and God removes kings. He has every detail under the palm of his hand, even the, the specific calendar even if we debate what the meaning is of 2,300 evenings and mornings, were these full 24-hour days? Should these be divided into two? Does this represent some other symbol, some other future time? Or was it the period of Antiochus Epiphany's uh, uh, worst devastation in the tabernacle or the temple? We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that God is the God who knows it all. And I think that's a comfort, isn't it, to not only us, but that's a message that we have to the world, to our neighbors. We have a message. We don't know all the whys. We don't know all the whys. But we know the who. 
we know without a shadow of a doubt that, that God is the God of history. And that is moving history at a particular pace. At just this moment, nothing is outside of his control. Nothing going on in your life and in my life and in this pandemic or anything else is outside of God's sovereign control. He's absolutely acquainted with all of it in every detail. And it's moving toward a wonderful end, namely the glory of God and the preservation of his perfect bride one day, the church of Jesus Christ. I've chosen as a, a, a title of this message, Mid-Toil and Tribulation, from the hymn, The Church is One Foundation, because that's, that's what's described again in chapter 8 as it was in chapter 7. That's where we live. We saw it this morning. We, we see it again tonight. Mid-toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. How do we know? How do we know that the church militant today as we fight and claw against the devil and his schemes, how do we know that one day we'll be the church triumphant? victorious because of the cross that's why because of the cross where sinful men put to death the son of man the lord and glory of heaven according to the foreknowledge of god even the cross was designed and ordained by your father so that your sins and my sins could be blotted out and atoned for. The devil rages, as we saw last week, because he knows his time is short. In fact, Antiochus Epiphanes and this devastation of the Jews during this period of time, it sounds very much like Satan himself, doesn't it? Listen, verse 24 again, his power shall be great, but not by his own power, notice, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he did. He rose up against the prince of princes, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he struck him on the cross. But it says, as it meant of Antiochus Epiphanes, so of the devil himself, he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Not by human might but by the power of God at the most surprising of places on a cross. That's where the devil himself was given a death blow from which he will never recover. 
It was at the cross where Jesus shed his blood, where we are forgiven and the devil was destroyed. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He, that is Jesus, on the cross, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over him in him, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a broken world mid toil and tribulation, and yet God is causing and calling us to lift our eyes up again this evening, no matter what we face, to realize that God is on the throne. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder from Daniel chapter 8 this evening. Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you that your truth sets us free. Lord, help us to look to you for grace, for hope, for confidence, for comfort, for our conviction. Change us, O Lord. Help us to live where we are for the glory of your name. And help us to look again to the coming of Jesus Christ. Come quickly, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is the four verses of that wonderful hymn that we'll sing at this time. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord.
Amen. Now receive God's blessing as you serve him this week, trusting in his gospel. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.